<laughs> a history of comedy. It's Another homage in the archive. A history of comedy. It's several objects. A history of comedy. Come and have a rummage in the archive. Hello and welcome to another episode of A History of Comedy and Several Objects, a podcast from the University of Kent about the British stand-up comedy archive. In this podcast, in each episode, we take just one item from the archive and we talk about it in detail to see what it reveals about the history and nature of stand-up comedy. Uh, I'm Ollie Double, this is my colleague Elspeth Miller, and we are very much the Richard and Judy of comedy archiving. Oh uh, yeah, Richard and Judy. <laughs> I used to watch him. I didn't watch this morning, because right. I was at school, obviously. But then they did this like like early evening oh, yeah. thing on Channel 4. Yeah. I used to watch that sometimes before Neighbours. <laughs> That's really good, uh, Richard and Judy. Well, I'm not sure. It, I'm not sure it is good. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, but it's that time when you when you when you're in your teens, you get back from school and you watch any yeah, crap because yeah. <laughs> you need to depressurize. Uh, also, I mean, you might say, well, why Richard and Judy? Uh, they're not a comedy double act. But for a start, we've had other non-comedy double acts. But I think they kind of are a comedy double act in a way. She's the straight yeah. man, as it were, because she's the sensible one trying to <laughs> impose order. Yeah. He, just, he starts talking about anything and you can just see her kind of cringing inside. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about that, are we? No. So what is our comedy object today? Our comedy object is a scrapbook from Arnold Brown's collection. So a scrapbook like you might have had when you were a kid, well, certainly I did, like... You know, with like the sugar, different coloured sugar paper yep. pages. Yeah. Um, so this is a scrapbook which um, Arnold Brown's sister made for him, and it's basically made up of lots of um, lots of press coverage, which talks about Arnold, Arnold's career, um, and his part in sort of the comic strip and and his solo career as well. Okay, so um, just straight away, uh, the cover doesn't look like an ordinary scrapbook cover because the sort of generic mm. scrapbook design has been covered by bits. What mm. have we got on here? Um, the main kind of covering is actually a front cover of Time Out magazine, the Christmas double issue for 1980 into 1981. Um, and it's it's made up of kind of lots of pictures of Alexi Sale in various kind of Christmas type outfits he's got you know santa claus hats and beards and lots of balloons and party hats and things yeah. <laughs> and then kind of the features the featured acts in time out so the main kind of artists featured on the cover are jg ballard the author woody allen uh, divine and then it also talks about the comic strip who arnold was arnold was in the comic strip kind of collective of um comedy performers and it says plus the comic strip gorillas of new wave humor featuring our cover cover star alexi sale in a true life photo drama and uh, what i the one i particularly i do find the idea of him as, as santa very funny and there are various ones of him as santa but i think this one's great so he's wearing his little <laughs> pork pie hat it's his sort of mod poet character the cockney mod poet character he used to do where he just used to swear loudly and say things like cortina um, but he's. I thought he was swinging from a can of lager initially, but he's not. It's a. It's a. It's a massive sort of industrial size container of Evo stick, and he's got it up his nose. <laughs> so it's a kind of sniffing glue kind of reference. 
So the main thing is the timeout cover, but you've also got um, like a little kind of, it's like a business card type um, advert for, for the comic strip performing at the Boulevard Theatre with, so a different set of performers than perhaps we might know later. So you've got Alexi Sale, Outer Limits, 20th Century Coyote, Arnold Brown, and then Trimmer and Jenkins. But obviously no French and Saunders yet yeah. at this point. Um, and then there's other, there's other bits of kind of mini press kind of um, cuttings as well. We've remarked about, upon this in an earlier episode, but uh, Tuesday to Sunday, 8.30, Friday and Saturday, 8 and 10 p.m. That's a lot of shows. Yeah. So, in other words, you know, you've got every day but Monday, so that's six nights a week, and then two nights a week you've got two shows. So that is actually eight shows a week. That's amazing, actually, that they were doing so many shows. Now, the comic strip is interesting because it became a kind of collective of comedians and occasionally you still get uh, new television films made, you know, under the comic strip banner, um, uh, largely masterminded by Peter Richardson, who is half of The Outer Limits. Um, but at, the, at this point, the comic strip was, was, was a show. It was... Um, it was one of the first big alternative comedy venues. There was the Comedy Store, which opened in May 79, and the Comic Strip, which opened in 1980. And the Comic Strip was quite different from the Comedy Store. We have here a clip of Arnold Brown talking about the two together and how they compared. The Comedy Store and the Comic Strip... They had that one ingredient, uh, almost a raffish atmosphere, kind of, you know, it was not part of our society, it was, and it was a bit, well, not dangerous, but sort of uh, adventurous, you didn't know what was going to happen, and that, that's a great ingredient for comedy, it was, it's a great ingredient for comedy, the, the, unexpe- the unexpected action. And uh, how how many people would 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 the how many uh, people in the audience could the comic strip uh, you know how many people could you get in there? Oh, it couldn't have been more than about two or three hundred. Right, a small show, but it was perfect actually. And at the end of each show, um, uh, used to do a kind of uh, everyone came on stage except me, uh, impersonation of Dexy's Midnight Runners. Oh yeah, yeah. I think, pop-up toasters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all, but, I mean, but at the beginning, the, when we went to the comedy, from the comedy store to the comic strip, uh, it didn't catch on, you know, from the opening night, you know. It was quite... Um, it took a bit of time before people knew about it, and then it was packed out. Well, I, I used to have... Because uh, one, one evening I came up with something... Uh, there was only about 20 people in the audience, I said, I said my old joke about it, that's when it, I felt a bit tight. I said, uh, I think a bond has been established between myself, the performer, and you, the audience. I think we can sum up in the one word, resentment. <laughs> and I, 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 we used that in the young ones in the, the graveyard scene. So, I mean, what, what, what I'm thinking about is, is the atmosphere of these places uh, that you don't know what is going to happen, and I think I thrived on that. But also I thrived because um, I didn't thrive, but uh, uh, particularly the comic strip, 
everyone was uh, over the top. I mean, you, but, I mean, any amateur dramatics note, you've got to have a, uh, you can't have everyone. Uh, and then we went on tour. When so, in other words, you offered a contrast oh, because yeah, you oh, were yeah. quiet and calm. Well, I was in the middle, and uh, cause, cause you could, I mean, Alexei was <laughs> non stop. Rick and Aid were mad. Uh, Peter, and, uh, they were pretty uptight. Uh, and, then, and then I remember about a few months after the comic strip started, these two young women came along, you know who? And I was behind a pillar, I thought to myself, each of them, I was 42, there was two 21s equals 42, I thought that was the end of me. So then the main thing that was different about the two was in the comic in the comedy store it was anybody who wanted to could get up and perform and although there was there were consistent people so Alexis Sell would compare at various times there were other regular compares like Tony Allen did it for a while uh, Ben Elton did it for a while but you know it was and, and there was a core of performers who would come back but it was basically a free for all the the comic strip by contrast was a fixed group of people plus guests and it felt much more like a review, like a theatrical review, than a than a sort of stand-up night in a way. Uh, and and actually, what they started doing was the same material every show as well. Um, so it, it was a kind of a it was a step up, I suppose, in terms of professionalism. But it was also, in a way, a step away from stand-up. And actually, if you think about the acts here, you've got Alexi Sell, who was a stand-up. The Outer Limits, a double act. 20th Century Coyote, a double act. Honor Brown, a stand-up. Trimmer and Jenkins, I think, were a musical act. At various other points, they had Furious Pig, who were an amazing <laughs> musical act, who were a kind of um, punk a cappella ensemble. Uh, you had French and Saunders, a double act, uh, and so on. So, you know, it, it, there was, and, and, and in terms of double acts, I mean, the, the Outer Limits particularly were quite a theatrical double act. So, you know, it, it's interesting that they were probably the most famous manifestation of early alternative comedy, and yet the least typical in a way of what grew out of it, in other words, the stand up circuit. Because obviously you still get a lot of double acts, but those double acts uh, are very much swamped by the large number of solo stand-ups. Should we um, open it up? Yes. Okay, so the first page, well, instantly I'm struck by this. What, what Could you describe this photo? Yeah, so we have a, on the first page a picture um, or photograph of Arnold Brown performing um, at the comedy store. We presume it's got the the kind of the gold shimmery curtain, the silver slash curtains. <laughs> okay, um, and the the ceiling, which we've I think was it Tony, Tony Allen, Allen who was describing it. I think he described yeah. it as a gothic Lego ceiling. I think I yeah I wouldn't know how to describe it, so I'll, yeah I'll agree with him. It's maybe. sort of squared <laughs> square ceiling tiles, which are kind of gold color and in a kind of weird sort of geometrical pattern. Mm. They look like inverted pyramids in a way. Yeah, it could kind be of. the ceiling of the TARDIS, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. But he's kind of, it looks like he's in full full swing, doesn't he? I don't think that was his first night, and I'll tell mm. you why not, because uh, he had a really difficult time on his first night, and he looks happy there. He does, yeah. I think he's doing well. In fact, we have a clip here of Arnold talking about, briefly, what happened when he, he uh, did his first night, at the very first night of the Comedy Store in May 1979. Oh, this kind of zelig moment when one was at the comedy, who wandered onto the comedy store and didn't know anything about stand-up comedy and didn't, he, and didn't even look at the show beforehand and didn't, couldn't take the microphone out. 
And uh, I mean, another thing that's worth saying, I mean, you know, you've got the thing from Sounds here from 1980. Sounds was a major music paper. Music papers was a big thing then. I mean, they barely exist anymore. You can still get the NME, but it's given away free in shops. Back then, there were perhaps four or five different titles. There was uh, the NME, Sounds, Record Mirror, um, I forget which other ones. So there was at least one more. Uh, they were known as the inkies because they were printed like a newspaper. And you used to get the ink on your fingers <laughs> as you as you read them. But Sounds was probably the second biggest one. It was a really important newspaper. And you know, by by December 1980, Arnold Brown is being written up in Sounds, and that's really interesting because nowadays comedians reckon to go for a good few years before they start getting any attention, and they wouldn't think of taking a show up to Edinburgh for several years. Um, but here you've got Arnold Brown. So he's been going about just over 18 months at this point. And bear in mind that, you know, he's described himself as being, always being like Zelig, you know, in the Woody Allen film, sort of wandering on by accident <laughs> almost to the comedy store stage and completely failing initially, but just keeping going and keeping going until he learned how to do it and become this unique comic voice. Um, but, or, but you know, 18 months into his career, having started out in that unpromising way, he's being reviewed in sounds, which I think is really interesting. At what point in his career did he, did he go to the comedy store? Because he performed at the opening night, didn't he? So had he already given comedy a go at that point? Good question. So I'm just thinking practically, because he lived in Glasgow. And the comedy store is in London. So well, did he make a special trip? Do we know? No, he, he was he was working in London at the oh, time he started, okay. but he'd all, he had done some comedy, but not performing. So he'd done he'd done kind of um, uh, improv workshops just with friends, and I think they recorded bits of improv comedy improv, and he'd started trying to write comedy scripts. I, well, not just trying, actually succeeding as well. So he contributed jokes to a long-running radio show called Weekending, which was a topical, weekly topical comedy show on Radio 4 where they it was an open submission policy, so anybody was allowed to submit jokes. And you could submit short jokes by post or whatever, uh, but if you went along to the meeting, you could submit longer material. And I think he'd already got to the stage where he was submitting longer material by the time he started at the Comedy Store. But he had no idea what he was doing. He went out there with one joke thinking he would improvise. Yeah. And the one joke was, it didn't work. Because basically he was, he was going to say, uh, I'm an accountant, I check things. Can you hear at the back? <laughs> so he said, I'm an accountant. Somebody shouted, we can't hear at the back. Oh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so poor old Arnold got gonged very quickly. And, it, and in fact, it was, it was captured for posterity because there was a, a, a show that was a little bit like the one show at the time called Nationwide and they came to film the first night at the comedy store and there is archive footage of Arnold being gogged off um, which seems unkind that that was captured for posterity but on the other hand we're very lucky that we've got this scrapbook because it does show that he moved on from that to considerably greater success. So we turn on to the next page and we have, uh, I think, from the Observer magazine dated 23rd March 1980. And this is a report about the Comedy Store. And um, it's got lots of photos of comedians from the time. Interestingly, people who are not remembered alongside people who are remembered, you know, to differing degrees. So... You've got Keith, just from the photos, there isn't a photo of Arnold here, but just from the photos, you've got Keith Allen, you know, well known as, a, as an mm -hmm. actor, uh, a member of the audience, unnamed, 
So completely obscure. Aid Edmondson and Rick Mayle of 20th Century Coyote. Jim Barkley, one of the sort of um, mainstays of early comedy store. And you can tell this is early because he, he developed this particular distinctive costume, which he hasn't got at this point. He's wearing an anti-Nazi League t-shirt and a, a jacket with badges on and a cap. Cliff Shaw. No, uh, <laughs> you're pulling your face to say you don't know who he was. <laughs> you're absolutely right. I mean, he's obscure. But I think he appears in that same footage of Ar- Arnold at the, at the first okay. night of the comedy store. I think he hung out there for a time. And I think he was like an old school comic who was just trying to make it. When I interviewed Arnold, he he said that there was a divide. It was a really interesting point, actually. He said that that uh, when Peter Rosengard, who was one of the people who sort of set up, the main person, arguably, who set up the comedy store, uh, advertised for, for it opening, uh, he advertised in the stage and private eye. And what Arnold says is that the people, you could tell the people who came from Private Eye and the people who came from the stage, because the people who came from Private Eye were all the interesting ones who wanted to reinvent comedy and do something new. And all the ones who, who saw the adverts in the stage just went, oh, this is my chance, darling. I can get, well, probably not in that accent, actually. But, you know, but people who'd done summer season and work in men's clubs and so on. And I think he was more that school. Um, you've got Andy Latour here, uh, again, another mainstay of the early alternative comedy scene. And Kate Phelps. For her, sexism is no laughing matter. I don't know who she is. I mean, I'd love to know because we don't, you know, there's not a lot remembered about some of the female performers. Uh, we remember about uh, Pauline Melville, who was very good. Uh, a little bit Maggie Steed, less well remembered, uh, better known as an actor now. Um, but Kate Phelps is the new one on me. We've got three members, well, two and a part-time member of Alternative Cabaret yeah. as well. Absolutely, yeah, because yeah, yeah, so Andy Delator... Jim Barkley mm. and uh, Keith Allen, sort of not a member, but did gigs with them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we're going to turn the page. <laughs> Jewish Chronicle. Arnold has made much of the fact that he's uh, Glaswegian and Jewish, as he put it, two stereotypes for the price of one. <laughs> not a very good impression, but that's. I, I love the fact he's in the Jewish Chronicle there. Um, this is from later. This is from 1986. So he'd have been quite a well-known act by that point. Um, by this point... He would have been, yeah, he would have been quite a well-known actor and he, he uh, would have started to appear on television and things like that. And by this point, he was, being an established act, he had established his catchphrase. And now, do you know what his catchphrase was? I do. I don't know how it came about, but his catchphrase is, and why not? And why not? Uh, yeah, it is. And, and the, the weird and, and totally unjust thing about that is it's better known as being associated with Barry Norman. And there is a story behind that. Now, I had a, an email from Arnold a few months ago, and he said in a PS, hope that somewhere in my archive there is proof that the and why not catchphrase was originated in 1979 at the Comedy Store by yours truly and not by Barry Norman. Uh, Rory Bremner's writer pinched this later and put it into his impression of Barry Norman, and then it turned up much later again in Spitting Image. Edit. Uh, John Langdon, who wrote for Rory Bremner, knew me very well, in fact, as a fan. And then um, what happened was Barry Norman, uh, was it? Rory Bremner did an impersonation of Barry, no- of Barry Norman. Yes. But John Langdon, the writer, had put in And Why Not into his, um, you know, the yes. impersonation. And then the next morning, um, this is in Barry Norman's biography. He, I went, he said, I went into the street and a number of people came up, kept, kept 
coming up to me and shouting, why not? And why not at me? And I didn't, I didn't understand. And, I, and it turned out uh, it was something that Rory Bremner's writer had written for him. But then the funny thing was, I wrote to him, uh, my, I got my agent to try and find out what's happening, but John Langdon had the same agent as me, but uh, she never did anything about it, but this is a, the clincher. The title of Barry Norman's autobiography is, And Why Not? And Why Not? So I was really annoyed, that it didn't really matter, but... Edit. So it's one of those classic things where a celebrity is associated with a phrase they didn't actually say. You know, there's quite a lot of examples of that. Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember one, except uh, Mae West is supposed to have never said, uh, come up and see me sometime. I think she's supposed to have said, come up sometime and see me. There are lots of examples <laughs> of it. Um, and, uh, l- l- yeah, okay, so Barry Norman, I've got his autobiography here, which is titled... And Why Not? And Why Not? Uh, memoirs of a film lover and in this Barry Norman recalls suddenly inexplicably people coming up to him and saying and why not and giggling hysterically and I shall read you a bit okay so he goes I said what he said and why not I said yes I heard you what's that supposed to mean (laughs) Uh, he said it's what you say I said no to my knowledge it's what I never say he looked crestfallen but it's what Rory Bremner says you always say and gradually the mystery was solved. And it goes on that uh, Rory Bremner used this phrase, and why not, uh, in his impression of, of Rory Bremner. Um, and he, he says, now people asking for my autograph want me to, always want me to write, and why not, as well as my signature, and the presenters of various television programmes on which I happened to appear at the time, either because I had a book out or was about to start a new series, would say, and about this catchphrase of yours, and why not, when did you first start using it? Useless to tell them I never used it, and it was actually entirely Rory's in- invention. And it goes on. Uh, there's quite a funny bit, though. It was, it was all very irritating, and I went around complaining bitterly that I'd been lumbered against my will with this meaningless phrase, until one day I got a note from Rory. It said, invent your own bloody catchphrase in future. <laughs> but according to Arnold, it wasn't actually invented by uh, Rory himself, but by John Langdon, who was one of... Uh, was a very successful comedy writer, very prolific comedy writer, who was one of Rory's writers... And he says in a later email, says, knew my act very well from the early days. My hazy recollection that in fact, Rory used it in his impression of Barry Norman in his own TV show a few years before it was used on Spitting Image, as recorded in Barry Norman's uh, autobiography, and why not? Next, uh, he goes on to recall what Barry Norman says. Quite an interesting, interesting thing. I think it's interesting that Barry Norman has adopted it, though, for his book, if it- it was so irritating <laughs> but yeah um, he became so well known for it that he's yeah. used it as his book title i know it's so weird isn't yeah. it and it's it makes it even more unfair and galling that arnold invented this phrase because i think with with barry norman i think the, the idea was it made him seem to have this sort of slightly odd cheery kind of rhetorical device of going there's plenty to enjoy in this film and why not you mm. know that kind of thing whereas it was slightly different in, in Arnold's it was more to do with his kind of tangential weird gently weird way of looking at the world you know like he would say things like I was walking down the street the other day which I'm entitled to do you know I mean it's such a weird <laughs> non sequitur and and why not it is a much subtler and sweeter thing I think in Arnold's act than it was in the impression of, of mm. Barry Norman you know um, well I don't know I'll, I'll... Go and look through the archive and okay. see if we've got proof 
of um, of him using that. But we do have a cartoon that he deposited, drawn by Mel Kalman, um, and it's kind of depicting Arnold with his catchphrase, and why not? There we go. So. I mean, I, I bet you if... I mean, the, the, the key to it would be to find a... To, to date the first time of it being used on the Rory Bremner show and then to try and find an earlier example of Arnold using it. But I know that he... I'm 99.999% certain that he used it when he was recorded for the comic strip album. Um, so that came out in 81, I believe. And I think that it's likely that the Roy Bremner came after that. But you can get involved right <laughs> at home with this because you can Google the hell out of that and find out. Um, we have some reviews here of Arnold appearing in various shows like Brave New Comedy, which was a package with Arnold Brown, Norman Lovett, Paul Martin and Nick Revel. Paul Martin, better known as... Paul Merton. Paul Merton, indeed. Whose autobiography I read recently, and it's highly recommended. It's absolutely excellent. He's a, I, he, he's a, a really... I think that Paul Merton is an absolute comic tour de force. I think he's... In a way, it's a shame that he's best known for those sort of panel things because I think people think of those as being very ephemeral. But his work in those things like um, Have I Got News For You and uh, Just A Minute is so stellar, you know, um, that it's it's a shame that he's not as well remembered for things like The Paul Merton Show, uh, his own TV show that he had. Uh, because I think people think of, you know, a show, you know, like The Young Ones or something, uh, as being a bit more for posterity, whereas an episode of Just a Minute is just here and then goes. Or have I got news for you? Even more so because mm-hmm. it's topical. Yeah. But I think that you know he's he's just he's just a brilliant comic mind. Okay. Uh, oh, they, we've looked at this before, I think. But can yeah. you describe it? Uh, this is a flyer. Well, an A4 kind of poster flyer um, for a show at the at Pentameters, which was at the Three Horseshoes in sort of Hampstead. Yeah. Um, and the the performers that night, or those runs of nights, were the Outer Limits and Twentieth Century Coyote. So two, two of the comic strip, comic strip acts performing together. Oh, with with Arnold Brown as well. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> Arnold Brown. Yeah, I mean it's it's amazing, really. I mean if you think about that, you know, so it's a, it's a bill of Rick Mail, Ed Edmondson, Nigel Planer, Peter Richardson, and Arnold Brown. You know, all for, I don't know if it says how much it costs, uh, £1.50. Mm. £1.50. Mm. And Arnold also told me that Leonie, somebody, I forget her name now, but who runs uh, Pentameters, I think she still does. Um, she used to make them audition. <laughs> it's just weird. Because <laughs> it was mainly a theatre club, mm. so they were used to doing, you know, theatre shows. I think she, she made them audition, which is hilarious, I think. It's it's interesting actually. I'm noticing that it's not necessarily chronological. This scrapbook. No, you can kind of see where bits have fallen out. Like here, I think I think you've got the kind of the leftover sellotape kind of yellowness. So something has fallen out of of the scrapbook in various places. Um, but yeah, it's not yeah, it's not chronological. This one strikes me as interesting because the Edinburgh Festival is such an important part of comedy now. I mean, the the Edinburgh Fringe is kind of, I think it's probably the biggest comedy festival in the world. Uh, But this is for a different festival. This is the Mayfest um, in 1983. And on this occasion, Arnold Brown's on with John Dowie. John Dowie, a very interesting 
comedian because he was doing kind of like alternative comedy, but before the comedy store opened, long before, I mean, right through much of the 70s and writing comic reviews and things. And he uh, sort of became subsumed into the thing. Um, I, I'd never met him, but I'd really love to talk to him about that. Can I just ask an archiving question? Hmm. So um, in terms of archiving, obviously there's the artefacts themselves, but there's also how the person kept them, in this case in the form of a scrapbook. How important is that in, a, in terms of sort of ordering the material? So in terms of arranging, actually when, when Arnold came in and brought his collection with, with him, I think um, it was the, the 2016 Linda Smith lecture... Yeah. Um, Arnold was invited to, and at that point he brought brought material down with him. Um, oh, it was lovely. It was all ordered, <laughs> which as an archivist, it's really nice sometimes. Yeah. Because um, you and I have been looking through a different collection, not stand-up comedy, but um, kind of variety, which has absolutely no order at all, does it? But um, It has Arnold's... no order because it was delivered to us in a black bin liner. Yeah. Yeah, and, so. and it's it's taken about I'd say approximately nine hours to yeah. just even start to put it in some sort of order. Mm. So to get it in this kind of order must have yeah. been really cool. Well, and we're putting it in an artificial order as well in terms of it's not how the material was created or kept. Whereas Arnold's had kind of folded everything up really nicely into kind of themes. So material relating to the comic strip and material relating to his sort of solo performances and then other material relating to radio, his radio work. Um, so so in terms of arrangement, we didn't have to really do too much with this collection, but we do have a kind of a series relating to press, press relating to his performances. Um, and there's a lot of loose press in his in his collection as well. So basically the, the kind of the scrapbook lives in a sense with, with the loose press, but um, it's described, it has its own kind of catalogue record and it's described as a scrapbook. Um, we've put a bit of provenance information in there, so how it, how it was created, who created it. Um, but at the moment we haven't catalogued it. We haven't catalogued it down to kind of piece level. So we haven't, we haven't described each individual bit within the scrapbook. So each yeah photograph each um, piece uh-huh. of press coverage it's just the the description is kind of for the scrapbook as a whole well a couple of things that I've noticed uh, first of all that from the point of view of an academic if I wanted to quote this there's an article here no accounting for bad taste okay so it's an alternative mm-hmm. comedian which is associated with bad taste that he was an accountant so it's a fantastic title mm-hmm. by Mary Brennan but what it doesn't say is publication or date mm. or page number. So it makes it slightly frustrating for me uh, trying to, if I wanted to quote this in a, in a piece of research, I'd have to fess up and say that there's no date or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but of course, that's because if you're keeping your own archive, you're not an academic and you don't necessarily have that eye. I mean, some of them are dated. Some of them, this one, for example, has the date written on in pen, 1st of May 1989. And again, it's Arnold appearing at Mayfest in Glasgow. Um, but uh, the, the, so, but the question I wanted to ask you was, um, how important do you think the business of the way that people choose to archive their own career is, if you see what I mean, in terms of the way, you know, when it comes to us, is that an important consideration? So in terms of how they've arranged it yeah. or what they've kept and, yeah. um, it, it's an interesting element of kind of, it's interesting how people have kept their archive and we try and reflect that so kind of a a way of working as an archivist is that you try and um well you should try and respect 
the way that the material has been created. So there's there's things um, called original order. So that's relating to kind of... So when Arnold brought in his folders, yeah. we basically kind of have kept the collection in that order that he created it in. Great stuff. And there's also provenance. So this kind of... this the provenance of the material is kind of its history, where it came from. So with that collection that we were looking at yesterday, the provenance isn't clear, because although we got it from one depositor, um, we think he got it from various other places. So as an archivist, it's quite frustrating sometimes that you can't provide a clear history of the material. Um, but it's definitely interesting how what people collect um, and the way that they collect it. Um, it's definitely easier when people do apply an order to their material. Yeah. Um, but often that, that isn't the case. I, I've got to... Uh, that's really interesting, actually, and I, it makes an awful lot of sense. And I think, it, as well, it sort of relates to our mission, um, to, which is to sort of make sure this stuff doesn't dis, just disappear because, you know, it'd be very easy for somebody to kind of come along um, and look at something that somebody's kept and go, well, that's just rubbish we'll just put that in a skip or something mm. but you know in terms of me as a, as a as a researcher this this kind of stuff is amazingly useful and I'll probably be using some of this in a in a project I've just started working on um I, my eye was drawn to this this is from I'm not sure where it looks like a Sunday color supplement or it could be the radio times in fact I think it's the radio times it is the radio times because you could tell from the date so this is from 1987 and uh it's Hello Mum was a TV series where Arnold was a resident comedian and he was in it every week. He what I think that he sort of did standalone bits and the rest of it was sort of sketches. And uh, I'm, I'm drawn to the fact that he's right at the back, apparently looking from behind the Queen and waving because it's <laughs> some sort of trick photograph. Uh, but at the front, you've got um, the, the regular cast members. Clive Mantle, he went on to be in... Oh, Holy City. Yeah, not a casualty. <laughs> okay. He was in the original, yeah. So he was in that uh, for a number of years, I believe. Helen Lederer, who was a very good comedian and sort of comic actor who was, who you know, was, was part of the early scene and also, um, uh, you know, has appeared in, in things like, um, uh, appeared with Rick Mayne and Ed Edmondson with some of their stuff they did on TV. And this guy, Nick Wilton, who is actually a graduate of Kent from many years ago and he's somebody I know, uh, who, as well as working as an actor now, also sometimes in the summer sells ice creams along Whitstable Seafront oh. <laughs> on an old-fashioned stop-me-and-buy-one uh, cycle, you know. Okay. Uh, cool. And uh, he's a very, very nice guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he was sort of, in a sense, the lead performer in this series, Hello, Month. Just going back to archiving, it's quite... Because as part of the the arch- like cataloguing process, you do a lot of research into... Yeah. The performer or the organisation or, you know, whoever created the archive. So you do sometimes see gaps in the collection. So it's interesting what people don't keep. Um, that is interesting. So, or perhaps they've just not deposited it with us. But, for example, Mark Thomas, a lot of his collection is relating to his kind of, his more kind of his campaigning and activism work. Um, and that translates into his shows, obviously. But a lot of the material we've got is is kind of a lot of the research notes um, and a lot of AV from the kind of from the nineties onwards, really. Yeah. Whereas he started in comedy in the eighties, we don't really have any material relating to that, and that could be just because he didn't keep it because yeah. he was sort of 
young and yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> he didn't keep kind of ephemeral material, yeah. sort of flies and posters. It has to be said, at the mm. time you don't necessarily keep things because you yeah. just go, well, this is just what I do mm. and you think you're going to be doing it forever. Um, I mean, I know that there are things that I wish I'd kept, but you just don't. Mm. I did keep a lot of stuff, but there are occasional things. Also, you kind of wish that you could... T- tap into the memories with 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 crystal clarity like i visited lancaster recently with my son who's going to university there and uh i did a gig at lancaster university back in the 90s and i could remember a few bits about what happened after the gig and i had no memory of the gig itself whatsoever <laughs> not 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 a tiny bit uh this see, go back to the non-chronological thing we've gone past sort of 87 89 and now we're back in 1980 with an early article uh, about the, uh, the whole alternative comedy thing from a thing mm. called Now, a magazine called Now! Exclamation mark. Well, of course, this was... So Arnold's sister put this together for him. Yeah. So I presume it was not done... At the time. Kind of chronologically, no. no it must from have been a collection done in, of press that probably, she had kept or yeah. maybe even Arnold had kept. Yeah, probably probably done, yeah, after the fact kind of thing. Um but it's so good to have this press because you can find some of this stuff in in um, sort of digital uh, newspaper archives, but a lot of it you just can't. See, that's a bit annoying though because she sort of sellotapes this. Uh, Maybe it fell off of this oh, it page. Could have done. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this, yeah. I think it has. It's the, this is the picture story from inside. Uh, they've done like a photo comic strip. Uh, mm. for, that'll be from inside the um, um, edition of. Uh, Time out that's on the cover of the scrapbook. Yeah, again, another thing from Sounds there. It's it's a it's a brilliant document. And uh, here we go, uh, nineteen eighty eight. This is another accounting pun. Yeah, accounting for, <laughs> accounting for success. And this is about him at the Edinburgh Festival in eighty eight, a year after he won the Perrier, which we should probably just finish by talking about. He won the Perrier in. 88 and was I believe the first stand-up to win it because it had been comic theatre or student review you know the sort of footlights review type thing uh, before that point I think it was started in 81 the Perrier Award which is now the Edinburgh Comedy Award um, uh, so Arnold winning it was a big thing it was a big deal it was a show called Brown Blues but it should be acknowledged that it wasn't a pure solo stand-up show it, Arnold did his stand-up, and then he was on with a musical duo called uh, Younger and Parker. And I believe the f- show finished with him doing bits of material over their musical backing, which I would love okay. to see. <laughs> but anyway, this podcast isn't just about you listening to us blathering on. It's also about you getting involved. <laughs> There are various ways that you can get involved in this podcast, but first of all, you'll need to know how to contact us. You can email us via standup at kent.ac.uk. That's standup, all one word, no hyphen, at kent.ac.uk. We're also on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at histcompod. And we're also on Facebook. We've got a Facebook page. Uh, The first way you can get involved is go to the catalogue, which you can find online, Find a listing for a comedy object and nominate it. We'll talk about all nominated objects in future episodes. That's the vanilla version. And if you do that, we're going to send you a badge of the um, of the podcast and also a badge of the Stand Up Comedy Archive. So do remember to include a postal address. 
The chocolate chip version of getting involved is to send us an email, arrange to come into the Stand Up Comedy Archive, look at some material for yourself, record a short piece about one of the objects that you've seen. If you do this, you'll be given an amazing Stand Up Comedy Archive limited edition t-shirt in your appropriate clothing size. And uh, a podcast badge as well. Um, And we'll use those recordings in, in future episodes. And the stupidest way of getting involved is to record your own version of our theme tune. And if we like it, we'll use it in a future episode. One last thing. Please leave a review of this podcast on iTunes. It's really important to us. And if you do that, send us a screen grab of your review uh, on an email or something. And we'll and leave a postal address and we'll send you a badge. A History of Comedy and Several Objects is devised and presented by Dr. Oliver Double and Elspeth Miller for the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive, brought to you by the University of Kent. This is made possible by the University of Kent's Public Engagement Research Fund. Photography by Matt Wilson and editing and production by Matt Hulse.